Well, we enter this morning a new section within the Sermon on the Mount. Up until now, we've been studying what might be termed the introduction of the sermon or the prologue. For some time, we've been looking at the Beatitudes. And then you'll remember last week, Jesus exhorts his disciples to live out those Beatitudes in the public square, that they would indeed be salt and light. And that then brings an end to the introduction of the sermon. This section ushers in what will be the main body of Jesus' message. We entered into this new section concerning righteousness and especially the notion of a greater righteousness than that of the scribes and the Pharisees. And we'll be looking at this concept over the next few weeks as Jesus unpacks it and looks at various aspects of the disciples' lives. This text this morning is perhaps familiar to you. It undoubtedly, upon its first hearing, would have been an explosive text. It is loaded theologically. Jesus makes statements here that would have been as outrageous and challenging to his original hearers as you imagine. When he says, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees, that would have been as challenging as you might imagine to Jesus' disciples for them to hear that. Not only is the text theologically weighty, it is incredibly tricky to understand. There are many issues within this text that we have to work through this morning. Four verses, and the difficulty comes at least in part by the brevity with which Jesus introduces these ideas. We could easily spend the next four weeks going through these four verses, but I want to try and capture the argument, the idea, and so I want to give it to you up front, my synthesis of what Jesus is teaching here, and then we'll spend our time this morning working through the verses to see how this is instruction for us. So up front, what is Jesus saying in these four verses? By way of a summary, he is teaching that the Scriptures point to him as he esteems God's redemptive plan. Therefore, we heed Christ's instruction beginning with a readiness to trust him. Let me say that for you again. There are four clauses there, one clause corresponding to each verse. In essence, if I can boil this text down, Jesus is teaching that the Scriptures point to him as he esteems God's plan. 
Therefore, we ought to heed his instruction. Beginning with a readiness to trust him. So there's my synthesis of this text. Now let me argue that for you, and we'll take each clause of that sentence one at a time, going through each verse of the text one at a time, beginning with verse 17. Jesus is teaching that all the Scriptures point to him. He says, Do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. Now, whenever you study any text, you need to be wrestling with the issue of context, asking not only why this has been said at all, why did Jesus say this, but also why did he say it here? Why did Jesus feel compelled to say to the crowd on the mountain that day, I don't think that I have come to abolish the law of the prophets. Why was that a thought in his mind to communicate to the crowd? And more specifically, why should he say that statement at this point in the sermon? Why not later in the sermon or another time in his ministry? Why, on concluding the Beatitudes and the exhortation to be salt and light, would he then lead with this affirmation of the law and the prophets? And I believe the answer is, if you remember, in the last two weeks, we've seen Jesus talking of a righteousness that excluded the scribes and the Pharisees. If you think back over the last two Sundays, on both occasions, Jesus is teaching concerned a kind of righteousness that excluded the behavior of the religious teachers. So last week he said, you are the salt of the earth and the light of the world. And I put some weight on that article, you are the salt and the light, meaning you're not some salt and salt is to be found elsewhere. The Pharisees and the scribes, they're also salt. That's not what Jesus is saying. It was an excluding exhortation. You, my disciples, are the salt. The Pharisees are not. So he's excluding them. And the week prior, we thought about persecution, and we noted the two different kinds of righteousness, one that would not bring persecution, and one that Jesus promises will. The Pharisees exuded a kind of righteousness with no promise that they would be persecuted. In fact, they seem to enjoy a very comfortable existence. And so again, Jesus is drawing that dividing line between the righteousness that his disciples exhibit and the righteousness of the religious teachers of the day that was altogether different. That dividing line was not missed by the Pharisees or the scribes. They were keenly aware of what Jesus was doing through his teaching. Could it have been that some religious teachers were in the crowd on the mountain that day? Maybe. 
keenly aware as they listen to Jesus preach that they are being ostracized from his group. They don't get a part in this. Or, if none were present at that moment, you can rest assured that in due course, this sermon gets passed on. Did you hear what Jesus taught? Did you hear what he said? And the Pharisees would get wind of it. And again, they would not be ignorant to the fact that Jesus' teaching is consistently undermining their righteousness. And so in turn, that brings from them, the Pharisees and the scribes and the Sadducees, an accusation against Christ that we see in the Gospels. It brings an accusation that he was undermining the Scriptures. Jesus, that teacher, is undermining the law. And as Jesus passes on the baton in the book of Acts, we see that accusation brought in turn against the disciples. They also, after Jesus has ascended, they start to suffer the same accusation from the teachers of the day. This new way has no regard for the law of Moses. So that being the cultural context, Jesus, as he leads this new section in the Sermon on Righteousness, begins with an emphatic declaration, I did not come to abolish, to utterly destroy the law or the prophets. That's not my goal, that's not what I'm about. I did not come to undermine the Scriptures. Now, we need to think through some terms. What does Jesus mean when he appeals to the law and the prophets? Simply stated, he's appealing to the Old Testament there. That's shorthand for referring to all of the scriptures from Genesis through to Malachi. But I think actually he means more than just the text itself. The law being the first five books of the Bible and everything thereafter can and often is summarized as the prophets. Is Jesus simply saying I didn't come to undermine the text or is he saying more than that? It is interesting that in a portion of his teaching that is so centered on the notion of morality and ethics and right behavior that he invokes that second term, the prophets, and not simply the law. The law is where the commands are found. The law is where the obligations are found. And thereafter, in the Old Testament, as you know, there is much narrative, there is poetry, there is praise, there is prophecy. So why would Jesus be careful to say, I did not come to abolish the law or the prophets? And that is because he is appealing here not just to the commands of the Old Testament, but to their entire theological context, which is one of God's redemptive plan. What Jesus is saying here is, I have not come to abolish, undermine, utterly destroy God's redemptive plan. In a holistic sense, he's appealing to the redemptive plan that has been in place 
Since God uttered that promise in Genesis chapter 3 and the wheels have been moving forward ever since, he's saying, I have not come to undermine that plan, part of which are the commands we find in the law. I have not come to distract from work against, set aside what God has been doing throughout redemptive history. Rather, he says, haven't come to abolish them, I have come to fulfill them. Just imagine what Jesus' hearers would have been feeling, thinking, as they have followed this man up the mountain, and thus far he's taught on a kind of righteousness that will make them distinct within the world. And now he says, I have come to fulfill the plan. I have not come to abolish all that God has been doing, but to fulfill it. And here is another loaded theological term. We need to think carefully what Jesus means when he says, fulfill. Some have argued that this is one of the main themes in the book of Matthew, not least because thus far, up until this point, we have come across this term already some seven times. We have come across it five times from Matthew himself and twice from Jesus, and every time the two are in complete agreement. Matthew uses the word fulfill in the same way that Jesus does. If you think back to our time in Matthew's prologue, perhaps you remember that was a time when weekly we were turning back to the Old Testament Scriptures because Matthew was saying such things like, this, was, this happened so as to fulfill what the prophets spoke. And we wrestled with, what does Matthew mean when he says that? Just by way of reminder and example, the women wept when Herod killed the children in Bethlehem that night. And Matthew uses that term. This was fulfilled by what was spoken by the prophet Jeremiah, who notes weeping at the time of exile. And one thing I tried to labor in those weeks was that the word fulfill does not invoke the notion of a box-ticking exercise. It's not that there's these Old Testament prophecies that we're just waiting to be fulfilled and then we can check the box and now we can move on and forget all about them. Rather, each and every time we see this word fulfill, the author, or indeed Jesus, is pulling on a broad theological context and invoking the plan. So when the women wept, Matthew appeals to a weeping in Jeremiah because just around the corner in Jeremiah's prophecies were glorious words spoken about the new covenant. The sequence in Jeremiah was weeping new covenant truths. And so Matthew says there is weeping now in Bethlehem and it is fulfilling the prophecies of Jeremiah. That is to say it is actualizing realizing, moving forward, that logic, that theological grid is now moving forward toward the new covenant realities of which Jeremiah spoke. He's centering our attention on Jesus and saying, 
here is the bringer of that covenant. It's no different here when Jesus says, I haven't come to abolish the law of the prophets, the plan. I haven't come to abolish the redemptive work of God, but to fulfill it. I have come to actualize the plan. Consider the fact that for 400 years it has in essence laid dormant. With the close of the Old Testament canon, God has not spoken through any further prophet for years. And God's people are waiting and wondering, what of the plan? And then Jesus shows up and says, I have come to fulfill it. Certainly not that it is fulfilled at this moment, but through his life and his ministry, he has come to actualize, move forward, progress the plan. That is the mission of Christ. And as you know, his fulfillment of the plan includes his perfect life without sin, his eventual death on the cross, his resurrection, his ascension, his passing on of the stewardship to the apostles, the church age, leading to eventually his return. All of that is being invoked when Jesus says, I am here to fulfill the plan. And so the point for us to acknowledge is that before this text is any kind of comment on our ethics, first and foremost, it is a declarative statement about Christ's identity. Before this text, 17 through 20, functions as any kind of teaching concerning morality, it is first an emphatic teaching concerning Christology. It teaches us again who Christ is. Not least the center of all history. The one that will bring to its proper conclusion God's ordained plan through redemptive history. And so before we get to consider issues of right behavior, we first consider issues of relationship how Christ-centered is your Christianity. How Jesus-centric is your faith. As Christians, it is very easy to fall into a way of thinking and acting and behaving that loses all sense of being in a relationship with Jesus. And becomes consumed first and foremost with what we ought not to do and what we ought to do. Law keeping, law abiding. Undoubtedly part of our religion. But not the defining feature of it. Your religion is to be first and foremost one of relationship before right behavior. We return to Christ as the center of our faith before we turn our attention to what he would require of us. Now that leads us on 
2, verse 18, the Scriptures point to Christ who himself esteems the plan. Look with me at verse 18. He says, for... So there's the explanatory connection. Let me explain how it is that I didn't come to abolish but to fulfill the plan. How can that be? For, verse 18... Here's my explanation. I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away. So Jesus just issued a time stamp. Every good dispensationalist loves a time stamp. Give me a chart so I can draw it. No charts today. Jesus just gave some kind of time stamp within the plan until heaven and earth pass away. Not an iota or a dot. Traditionally, not a jot or tittle will pass from the law until everything is accomplished. So what is Jesus saying here? Well, the timestamp, the passing away of heaven and earth. That would speak to essentially what is the very last thing within God's redemptive plan. As we understand it, God promises that the church age will continue until Jesus receives them unto himself and the tribulation begins on earth, at the end of which Christ inaugurates his earthly kingdom and there he will reign on this earth for a thousand literal years and at the very end of that reign, Satan undergoes the final judgment Heaven and earth, as we presently know them, will pass away and God will usher in the new heavens and the new earth. So the passing away of heaven and earth is, in essence, the very last thing on the plan. We're not going to get there, Jesus says, until everything spoken about in the plan has been accomplished. Now, as Jesus draws attention to the iota and the dot, he is esteeming the plan. So the iota in the Greek language, as you probably know, is equivalent to the letter I, and it would have been essentially just a brushstroke on the page. Most likely, Jesus is actually speaking in Aramaic here, and within the Hebrew and Aramaic language, that iota would actually refer to what we call the yod, an even smaller brushstroke within those languages. The smallest of scribal marks, except that is for the dot. There, most likely, Jesus has in mind the curvature that we see on some Hebrew letters. If you learn that language, you have to have a very good eye for detail because there are letters that look identical. They are distinct and different, and the only difference between them would be that one has a small curvature at its end. You think about your Times New Roman font compared to your Comic Sans. The Times New Roman is distinguished by small curvatures at the end of the letters. That is what Jesus is referring to when he says, not a dot will pass away. 
until everything has been accomplished. It's all going to happen. He is esteeming God's plan. Now, we will get to the difficult question of how we, Christians, in the New Testament time, how we ought to then relate to the law as it was given in the Old Testament. We'll get there. But for now, as a principle, simply observe Jesus' reverence for God's Word. He upholds and esteems every brush mark that God caused to be penned and that we, privileged as we are, have in our hands this morning. And this ought to be a great comfort for us as our Lord Jesus affirms the Scriptures. He functions for us as an example. What does it compel us to do? To affirm the Scriptures. It is to be a refuge for God's people. A great comfort is to be found as we consider just how highly Jesus revered the Word of God. Because it is an accurate representation of His will and His plans and His intentions. And therein, the church should find great comfort. Consider what God has revealed to us and how that should encourage us daily. I mean, the examples abound. You think about missions and the labor that it is to go into hard, difficult places where there are no promises pertaining to our earthly physical security, but there are clear promises that God will save those from every single tribe, tongue, and nation, and they will be represented around the throne of Christ on the last day. And so the church need not hesitate give their energy to those endeavors, knowing not so much the earthly safely is guaranteed, but one day there will be a testimony of those efforts and there will be those from that dark, desperate nation worshiping Christ, redeemed by the blood of the Lamb. The Scriptures are a great comfort and encouragement. Consider as you look outside of the church to a dark society that is only getting darker the failing standards of morality, and how desperate times are becoming, consider the fact that the Word of God speaks to that. And God promises there is not one sin that is being overlooked. Every injustice will be dealt with on the last day. The guilty will be punished, and in that the Christian can take great refuge. We are to run to the Word of God because it is for us a comfort and an encouragement daily. And Christ understands that as He lifts it up and He esteems every single brushstroke. And at the same time, as Christ in verse 18 functions very much as our example in His attitude toward the Scriptures, there is undoubtedly a challenge for us. How Christ-centered is your Christianity? How much Bible is there? 
in your religion? Do you read the Bible? I'm aware often that when I come on a Sunday and invite you to open the text, for some and maybe many, this is the first time you've opened your Bible since last Sunday. And that's not how Jesus would have it be. He esteems the plan as it has been revealed in this book. And he wants for us to do the same. I was interacting with a young man just this week on this issue. And he asked for prayer. How can I pray for you? It was specifically that I would be more in the way of opening God's word. He said, I'm not where I ought to be with my Bible reading, but I want prayer and accountability. And I rejoiced at his willingness, not just to be transparent, but his desire to esteem the scriptures as Jesus esteemed them. Now, as Jesus esteems the scriptures, that then plays out into an obligation for us to heed his instruction. So moving on now to verse 19, the scriptures point to Christ, who esteems the plan, therefore we heed his instruction. Now, how is that so? Verse 19, Jesus begins, therefore. So you see how he's developing this argument. He says, I haven't come to abolish the plan but to actualize it, move it forward to its intended goal. That's my role. For it's not going anywhere. Not a iota or dot is passing away till everything's accomplished. Therefore, verse 19, so this is your responsibility now. In response to the movement forward of God's plan through Christ, verse 19, therefore... Moral implication, whoever relaxes one of the least of these commandments and teaches others to do the same will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever does them and teaches them will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. What Jesus is not doing here what he is not doing here is trying to level all the commandments on the same playing field as if they all carry the same weight. We've read Jesus' words already this morning where he says, the greatest commandment is this. Love the Lord your God with your heart, soul, and mind. The second greatest is this. Love your neighbor as yourself. Elsewhere, Jesus talks about the light commandments. He accuses the Pharisees of adhering to the light commandments. They tithed their mint and their cumin and their dill, but they were negligent of love and justice and mercy. So Jesus had this 
gradation of commandments and he affirmed it. And here he is not trying to say they're all equally significant. However, and his point is, acknowledging the weightier and the lesser, you don't get to choose which ones you obey. That's Jesus' point. Not an iota or a dot will pass away. You do not get to pick and choose which commandments you obey and which ones you leave behind. I do think there is a pharisaical polemic woven all the way through this text as he knows full well the practices of the Pharisees. They, as we just mentioned, were often in the business of affirming and adhering to the lighter commandments and neglecting the heavier ones. Equally, they did the reverse and as they put a barrier around the law and they taught their interpretation of it, there was much being lost So that they themselves had become practices not of the whole law. And in turn teachers who were encouraging others to do likewise. They were teaching in such a manner that people who listened to them and obeyed them were not submitting fully to the law. And Jesus says that's not your place. You don't get to do that with the law. You do not get to pick and choose which commandments you obey and which you leave behind. And to his disciples, he gives a warning. If that's the way you come towards the law, you're not esteeming the plan. If that's the way you approach it, to his disciples, when you get to the kingdom of heaven, there will be an acknowledgement of how you treated the law. You'll be called the least. If you submit to the whole law and you're diligent, likewise, there'll be acknowledgement of that in the kingdom. I think to the Pharisees, to the non-disciples who had not put their faith in Christ, the warning actually goes even further. There is potentially a a wordplay here. When Jesus says, whoever relaxes, it's the same root used when Jesus says, I did not come to abolish. In verse 17, I did not come to utterly destroy. In verse 19, it could easily be translated, whoever destroys. One of the least of these commandments. I I did not come to destroy. If you choose to destroy the least, you get called least. And the implication is, for those that are not disciples of Christ, but who are doing this, the Pharisees, you don't even get in. You destroyed one of the least commandments, you get called least. That is, you get destroyed also in eternity. It's a severe warning. Jesus, again, is esteeming the law, every part of it, and then that leads us to think through, so what ought to be our relationship to the law? This is a difficult question that this text always brings up, and we need to think through. With all of this 
affirmation and reverence expressed toward the legal codes, how does the Christian understand himself in light of that? The good news is, Acts chapter 15 settled once and for all the notion that we are bound in its entirety to the Old Testament law. The very first church council in all of history, Acts chapter 15, the Council of Jerusalem, and the question was, do these new believers, these Gentiles, need to become Jewish in order to be Christians? Do they need to submit to the Mosaic law? And the decisive answer was no. The law came as part of a covenant And that covenant, the Mosaic covenant, is obsolete. So we're not bound by the law. We're free to eat bacon. Praise the Lord. (laughs) What about the idea that the law has been divided into three parts? This is a common understanding that the law came in three parts, moral, ceremonial, and civil, And the moral continues into the New Testament, and that is binding on us, but the ceremonial and the civil has dropped away. It's a common understanding. It's very difficult to defend that view from the text. There's nothing in the text that speaks about that threefold division. And in fact, if you search the law itself, as given in Exodus, Numbers, Leviticus, Deuteronomy. There's no evidence that the law was being presented according to those divisions. So the idea of one aspect continuing while the other two drop away is difficult to defend. Again, the law was given as part of a covenant, and the covenant is obsolete, which means our submission to it is not required. So how do we understand ourselves in relation to the Old Testament law? Again, that word fulfill, back in verse 17, proves to be decisive. Jesus says, I didn't come to abolish it, but to fulfill it, to grab hold of the plan, and to bring it to its intended goal. I am the center of history. I am the center of God's plan. I am grabbing hold of everything that he spoke in the Old Testament through the prophets, and I am now picking it up and running with it until its completion. Fulfill. Part of that plan, part of Christ's fulfillment of the plan, includes the inauguration of a new covenant. That's part of what he will do. Part of Jesus' ministry is to usher in a new covenant. The old one becomes obsolete. The new one comes in and it contains its own teaching, its own commandments. Now note this, the new covenant and the commandments that are contained therein do not run contrary to the old covenant. 
God didn't issue the law in the Old Testament for Christ to come in and give a law that ran completely in contrary direction to it. Rather, it runs very parallel. This is why I say that our practice of the Christian faith does and ought to look very Old Testament-like. We understand that we honor our mother and father. We don't murder or steal or covet and so on. Because the same God that gave the Old Testament covenant is the same God that gave the new one. Jesus is not running against that plan, but complementing it, augmenting it, furthering it in the context of a new covenant. Now, certainly it is different in specifics because it's a different age and God is now working through the church and not the nation. So it's not identical but it doesn't run in the opposite direction. You might say Jesus picks up the Old Testament law and he gives his interpretation and application of it to the church. What is our relationship to the Old Testament law? We honor it, we esteem it, we revere it, especially by showing our obedience to Christ's command. We honor the Old Testament law. How? By obeying the words of Christ. We are in the new covenant. And he has given clear teaching. And that is what binds us. We're not part of the old covenant. We're part of the new. And there are words that are binding on us. As God has saved us, he now expects us to obey What do we obey? The teachings of Christ. And as he hands on the responsibility to the apostles, the teachings found in the epistles also. Over the next few weeks, Jesus will be unpacking that new covenant ethic in the sermon. He'll be showing us what it means to obey him my prayer for us as a church as we have already prayed this morning is that through these teachings of Christ he would lead us in a yet more faithful path of obedience we're not perfect and we're not where we ought to be so we pray Father lead this church in a yet more faithful expression of obedience. And I would ask that you would pray that with me in the weeks to come. Now that then leads to the last climactic verse of this text. The scriptures point to Christ, who himself esteems the plan. Therefore we heed his instruction beginning with a readiness to trust him. So why do I say that in light of verse 20? Again, notice the connection. For I tell you, there's that word for. He's explaining how it is that there could be a diminishing of those that relax the least commandments, a diminishing of them 
to the point where, without faith in Christ, it actually spells an expulsion. How can that be? Verse 24, this is the reason. I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. And Jesus is being very, very emphatic there. You will never enter. He is establishing a barrier that cannot be broken to the gates of the kingdom. And the entry point depends upon the righteousness that you have shown exceeding that of the scribes and Pharisees. This is as close as we come to a first century mic drop. It's as explosive a statement as you would think. It sounds to his original hearers as impossible as it sounds to you. If you know anything of the scribes and Pharisees and the righteousness that they exhibited, Jesus is in effect setting the bar impossibly high. So how do we understand this? Does it mean anyone is in the kingdom? It does if we zero in on the word righteousness. You have to probe words as they're found in arguments, and here righteousness is critical. Very helpfully, one commentator defines righteousness as whole person behavior that accords with God's nature, will, and coming kingdom. Righteousness is whole person behavior that accords with God's nature, his will, and the coming kingdom. Did the Pharisees exhibit righteousness? Absolutely. Of a particular sort. It was external. It was based in a notion of their ability it was not a righteousness that accorded with God's nature, will, or coming kingdom. It was, in that sense, a false righteousness. Did his disciples, Jesus' followers, exhibit righteousness? Yes, they did. By no means perfect, floundering often, but grounded in faith in Christ. And that's the difference. You see, what Jesus is teaching in verse 20 is that your righteousness needs to exceed that of the scribes and Pharisees in its quality, not its quantity. It has to be a greater righteousness in its essence, in its quality, in its substance, in its DNA. It needs to be greater than that of the legalists the Pharisees, the frauds. Not in terms of quantity. There's the impossibility. You can't better them. But Jesus is saying in its essence, in its quality, it needs to be radically altogether different from the righteousness that you see practiced by the religious teachers of his day. A few months 
before coming to Bethany, I received a phone call from a father to inform me that his son had passed away. I didn't know the father, but the son, a young man, had been in my ministry for some time. And out of the blue, he had been found dead because of a drug overdose. Now, this young man loved Christ. He loved Jesus, and I knew that, and he loved the church, and he had a hunger and a thirst for righteousness. But before salvation, he had had a history of abuse with drugs. And for some reason, that evening in December, he had lapsed back into old ways, and his life on earth had ended. And the father was asking me if I would give a message at the memorial service, which I was honored to do. What do you say at such a time? What do you say to those listening? Did this relapse indicate that his faith had never been genuine? Not at all. Did his imperfect behavior indicate that he had never truly been a disciple? By no means. You communicate the sufficiency of the gospel to save to the uttermost. Through all of our imperfections and our failings, God had given him a genuine faith that is far greater than our sin. The truth is that young man had a righteousness that exceeded that of the scribes and Pharisees. Not in its quantity. Floundering and imperfect. It was different in its quality. In its essence. Because it had as its foundation a love for Jesus. And so, it was my privilege to preach at this very moment. He's in the kingdom of heaven, worshiping his Savior. I pray that God would give us affections for Christ that indicate that greater righteousness until we wait for his appearing. Let's pray now to close. Father, we give you thanks for this difficult text, difficult words from the Lord Jesus, theologically loaded, difficult to interpret. We praise you that he is the center of your plan. He didn't come to abolish it, to set it aside, to annul it. Contrary to what the Pharisees may accuse him of, he did not come to abolish the plan, but to pick it up and to run with it and to bring it to its intended goal. 
Jesus is the center of all history. And this is just as much a Christological statement as it is an ethical statement. May our Christianity be full of Christ. We see Jesus' reverence for the Scriptures, especially here the Old Testament Scriptures. He esteems every brushstroke. Not one will pass away. It's not going anywhere. Your word is sure. Jesus affirms that. May we affirm it also. May he be our example this morning and in our lives, not least with his reverence towards the Bible. May we love your word. May the evidence of our love for your word be found in our study of it, our reading of it, our memorization of it, our readiness to speak it to others. Jesus explains the implications that come from the certainty of your word, and that is that we should heed his instruction. We esteem the Old Testament law at the same time not being bound by it. We are bound by the New Testament, the New Covenant imperatives. Help us to show our reverence for the law given to Israel. How? By obeying the law given by Christ. Again, we pray specifically over the coming weeks. As we immerse ourselves further in the sermon, would you lead this church in yet greater paths of obedience? And then finally, in that climatic statement, we see how Jesus sets the bar so high. You'll never, ever get in unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees, a righteousness that is higher than theirs, not in quantity, but in quality. Its essence is altogether different. Because unlike them, our right behavior begins and ends with the love for Christ. Give us this love. For anyone that does not have this love, give them this love. To the praise of your glory, in Jesus' name, amen.